When I think about hope, I often uh, think about Christmas time. Uh, maybe you remember going to sleep or struggling to go to sleep on a December 24th evening and, and, and hoping, hoping that you'll get the presents that you wanted. Maybe those presents that you asked for, that you wrote a letter for, or just simply uh, that you didn't tell anyone about but just hoped uh, you would get them. Uh, maybe, maybe when you think of hope, you think of waiting for that letter from the university telling you that you got in, or maybe you, you think of the phone call you waited to find out that you got the scholarship or the job that you had applied for. We, we can think about hope in a lot of different areas of life. And this morning I want to look at how the Christian's hope is shaped, uh, not simply by wanting something and feeling like it could happen, but actually hoping on God's promise. Actually hoping not on just something that might happen, but someone who is faithful and keeps his promises. And so we look this morning at Psalm 130. And this is a psalm of lament. Uh, it's a psalm of an individual's cry to God in the midst of despair and affliction. And, and, and they are looking to God to help them in their circumstances. Uh, lament is a very ki common kind of psalm. It's a very common genre or, of psalm in which we see the psalmist, the writer of that psalm, facing circumstances for which they think their only hope, and they're right, their only hope is the Lord and His intervention and His care for them. But it's not without hope. Many of the psalms that are, are lament psalms are hopeful ones. They, they cry out in despair, but they turn when they look to the Lord and they find hope. Just look at the first four words of this psalm. Out of the depths. It, it, it first calls to mind where the psalmist begins. He begins in the depths. Knowing Psalm 129, which is all about the affliction, we know that these are the depths of affliction, the, the pit of despair. You couldn't really go lower. But this psalm, in just those four words, gives us the idea that we all need to get. Not only do we start in the depths, but we come out of the depths. Just these first four words give us not only a reality of our present circumstances, like the psalmist faces, but a hope that crying out to the Lord might change our circumstances. And we see that again and again and again and again and again and again in Scripture. That, that God answers the prayers of his people. He hears them. And we don't always know how he's going to answer them. But we see, just looking at the Old Testament even, this is one of the great things about the fact that it took so long in the history of Israel before Jesus came. Because they had a long history of God saying, you are my people. And them saying, okay, God. And then turning around and being like, actually, we want to be someone else's people. We want to be our own people. We want to be that God's people. We want to be like that country over there. We want to be different. And so they go on and, and live their own way. And God says, okay, well, if you're going to live like you're not my people, then I'll, I'll, I'll give up on, I'll, I'll pass my protection away from you. And so they find themselves in difficulty again. 
Because now they've gone to, to be with the nations, or they've gone to worship these other gods, and they've been given up to them. They've been given up to the rebellion and the sin in their lives. And so there, they finally realize, well, none of what we're doing is working. Fighting's not working. Praying to these other gods isn't working. You know, intermarrying with the nations isn't working. All these things that God told us not to do aren't working. And so they cry out to God. And what's he do every time? He responds. He hears them. If you want, I mean, this begins in Genesis and goes onward throughout the whole Old Testament. But if you want to just see a very uh, interesting unfolding of these events, just go read the book of Judges, okay? All the stories are going to be interesting. And if you like violence, great. Uh, The book of Judges has you covered. There's plenty of that. And there's a lot of interesting characters. But you're going to see cycle and cycle and cycle and cycle again. God saying, you are my people. Those people responding by saying, actually, now we're going to go our own way. God saying, okay, now you can go be given up to what you want. And then them crying out to him and him answering and hearing them. So we see even in the history of the Old Testament that pattern that God hears his people. He hears the voice of his people from the depths. They are not too far gone for God to hear them. Now imagine if you spoke to someone like the psalmist speaks to God in these first two verses. I cry to you, O Lord. A bit melodramatic. But then it says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. It's almost like I almost think of a teacher or a parent scolding you. Listen to me. Use your ears. Close your mouth. Open your ears. But that's not what the psalmist... The psalmist isn't just getting on to God for not listening. The psalmist is trying to make sure he has the ear of the Lord. Because he knows that if the Lord hears him, things can actually change. And he might even worry that in that deep place of despair and affliction for which he cannot find his own way out of those depths, can God actually hear me all the way down here? And the the thing we see again and again in Scripture is we are not too far gone for the Lord to hear our prayers. The first thing we see uh, that we need to remember is that the book of Psalms isn't just a book of random poems that are stuck in the Bible for, you know, the artsy people who are Christian to be like, oh, I've got some poems to read. These were, in Jesus' time, the songs they sang. These were the prayers they prayed. And so these prayers themselves give voice to our needs and our afflictions and our difficulties. And here we have the psalmist looking around. Maybe he didn't get the presents he wanted on Christmas morning. Maybe he didn't get the job or the the university acceptance letter. You know, maybe he's worrying about the fact at this time, not about those things, but about whether he was going to have food for his family that day, whether he was going to have work that would reap a harvest, whether his family was going to survive another day in a foreign land in which he and them were despised and abhorred. But it's not just these outside circumstances for which the psalmist needs hope and freedom and help. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The image here being, 
almost like God's an accountant. Okay, now if you are an accountant or formerly an accountant, uh, don't take offense at what I'm about to say. But God's not an accountant, okay? He, he doesn't have, he's not doing bookkeeping with your sin. Every wrongdoing, every rebellion, every transgression, every iniquity, using that Old Testament word for guilt or sins, God isn't keeping a record of them. God's not keeping all the receipts. He's not looking at every transaction for which you've come short and seeing that again and again you come up in the red. If God did that, who could stand before him and say, no, God, I'm good. I've been a really nice person. I've been generally kind. I donate some of my money to different organizations that help people. I I give some of my time at the soup kitchen. I, I give some of my time at the animal shelter. I, I pay my taxes mostly on time and mostly all of them. I, I do so much good. I, I, I try to be caring to my parents who are aging, and, and I try to you know, raise up my kids well, and I try to do well at my job, and I, I do all this, Lord. So if you mark iniquities... I don't know. I seem like I'm doing pretty good. But the psalmist implicitly says, no, no, no. If the Lord kept a record of your wrongdoing, if the Lord was looking at every choice you've made and seen that you've come up short, that's exactly what he would see. You could not stand before him and be in the right. But with you, the Lord, in verse 4, there is forgiveness. The problem of our sin isn't solved by all those things that make us look better on a resume, make us look better on a dating profile, or make us look better in the newspaper. The problem of our guilt and our sin our disobedience against God's word and our rebellion in our hearts against him to the point that we say, I don't want to be around Christians. I don't want to be in a church. I don't want to be somewhere where I may have to be confronted by God and change something about myself. But it's with the Lord there is forgiveness. And it is only with the Lord there is forgiveness. Now, lest someone tell you that the Old Testament God was a God of fear only, that he was a jealous God, a petty God, a violent God, an angry God, a God who does not care for people or about them and just treats them like ants on a hill or pawns in a game of chess, remember that this psalm is in the Old Testament. And plenty of the Old Testament is filled with the forgiveness of God and the grace of God and the love of God. And it's not just when Jesus appears that that all changes. Jesus is preaching the same scripture that they had all along. And he too brings forgiveness that he may be feared. Now we've talked about the fear of the Lord uh, recently in this series, and of course you can go online on, on YouTube or on the website and, and watch some of those sermons. But in thinking about the fear of the Lord, it's not being afraid of God. In fact, the, there are scripture passages that refer to that as well and say that being afraid of God is sinful. 
You know, actually like cowering and being scared of him. But the fear of the Lord is more of an understanding of who the Lord is, having a right understanding. In the New Testament, we see often it talks about, you know, people believing in Jesus or God. They, they, they have faith. They trust. In the Old Testament, what made you someone who was a part of God's family is that the, the fact that you feared the Lord. On, on the one hand, if you were an Israelite, you were commanded, fear the Lord. But on the other, and we see this in the New Testament in Acts, there were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and they were sometimes called God-fearers. And the reason was, is because these Gentiles, despite not being born of Jewish blood or having a Jewish mother, were choosing to worship Yahweh, the one true living God. So when we say, you know, oh, well, they're a believer, well, you can imagine in the days of Jesus and before, they would say, oh, well, they're a God-fearer. They had a right understanding of the awe that should come upon a person when they're, when they're met with the creator of the universe, the, the respect that should come from a God who is in control of all things, but is working all things together for the good of those who love him. What does it mean to fear God? It means to know who God is and try to follow him rightly. It means to walk in his paths because he is worthy of our fear. But this is the thing. Some of us treat it like we so fear God that we run away from his forgiveness. Or we seek forgiveness of our own. We, we seek to, to work it out ourselves on our own behalf. But here the scripture is saying, but with the Lord there is forgiveness that he may be feared. The fact that God can forgive you is the very thing that ought to make you worship him. And he is the only one that can. That's what the depths of affliction are the sin and guilt in our own hearts. It's not just stuff outside of ourselves. It's the very thing within us that is causing us to run from God, to, to hide from him, to, to not open this book because we might be challenged by things it says that we think we don't understand, to hide from preaching, to, to, to fill up our schedules with things so we don't hear the preaching of the word because it might offend us. It might challenge us. It might make us think that we don't know everything or that we're doing some things wrong. The Christian religion, or the Christian faith, is a revealed religion. It's a revealed faith. What that means is, yes, there is a God who is great and powerful and holy and distinct from his creation, but he did not abandon us to our own understanding. He has revealed to us what we need to know. He has revealed to us everything we need to know, and not really that much more. There's actually a lot of questions we still are having in our heads when we read the Scripture. There's still questions we might struggle with. But we have what we need from the revelation of God. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how even looking at the world is evidence of God's creation and God's glory. But that on our own, we are insufficiently capable of understanding it such that it brings guilt upon us for not believing in him, but doesn't actually give us any revelation of him that can be saving. But he sends his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might see him revealed to us in the flesh, in the person, revealed to us in the cross and the resurrection. And he gives us, he is inspired through his Holy Spirit, men to write down 
These words, yes, they are the words of men, but they are also the very words of God because he inspired them to reveal himself to us. We see that the Lord speaks to us. In verse 5, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Where does your hope come from? Where does anybody's hope come from? Well, the psalmist says, I hope in his word. In his word. His unchanging word that is formed, that that is spoken by a God who himself is unchanging by his nature. A, A God who doesn't change based on cultural tides, based on popular culture. A God who is stable, a God we can rely on. And it's in his word that we ought to hope. God is speaking a word of hope to the psalmist in the pits of despair, in the depths of affliction, in the, in the weight, as the weight of the psalmist's sin and guilt is laid upon them, burdening them. God speaks a word of hope. In the New Testament, the word, let me say this, the word, word, is often used and associated with the good news of Jesus Christ. And here it seems to me that the psalmist is saying, I am waiting. I am wanting forgiveness. But I don't want just the forgiveness that that sacrificial system gives me, although I will take it. I want forgiveness for everything. I want a forgiveness that will not grow old. A forgiveness that will not run out. And so the psalmist is saying, I am waiting. I am waiting on his word in which I hope. And maybe for the psalmist, he's thinking back to the the, the Old Testament scriptures for which Jesus in Luke 24 said, they are all about me. Maybe he's thinking of all the way back in Genesis 3 in which it says, there is a seed of woman who is coming to crush the head of the serpent. Maybe he's thinking back to Isaiah 53. There is a suffering servant by whose wounds we will be healed. Maybe he's thinking back to Daniel 7. This is the son of man who is receiving all dominion and glory and a kingdom We don't know, but we simply know this. He's not hoping in himself, is he? In the very depths, when he hits rock bottoms, there is no more hope in our own knowledge, our own abilities. We simply cry out to the Lord and hope for what? The Christ, the Messiah, the one who came and brings forgiveness for all. And what... What is it like when we come to this Lord? In verse 7, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. The psalmist is now saying, I'm telling everybody. I'm still in the pit, but I'm telling everybody to hope in the Lord. Because I know my hope is not in vain. It is not a hope like like hoping in a Christmas present. It's not a hope in in these circumstances. It's, It's hope grounded in one who keeps his promises. One who has shown time and time again he is there to help one who has promised that a Messiah is coming. Verse 6 says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. It has to say it twice. It's so important. I don't know if you've ever had a watchman job, like a night job. I have not. I praise the Lord. I know several people who have, though. And they'll tell you that you sit around and you wait and you twiddle your thumbs and you just get the hours and you get through it and you maybe some people come in and talk to you sometimes maybe you nod off for a few minutes 
But someone thinks it's important enough for you to be there watching and waiting that they pay you. Isn't that crazy? They think it's that important that someone is physically there. And the thing that you are waiting for is the sun to rise. When you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs, you're just waiting for the sun to rise. And, and, and maybe you're an action, like a watchman, like a night guard, like they would have had in Jerusalem at this time, watching the walls. And it wouldn't just be that they're waiting for the sun to rise so they can get through their shift. They're waiting for the sun to rise because that says that someone else is guarding the city and I did not get attacked that night. And so the, 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 the psalmist is telling us here that like a, like a watchman waiting for the morning, his soul waits for the Lord, knowing that the sun will rise, knowing that the morning is coming, knowing that this time this time where we do not know everything about the coming Messiah, this time in which darkness seems so prevalent, evil seems so prevalent, death seems so prevalent, sin seems so prevalent, my own sin seems so prevalent, this time will end because the sun is coming. And that's something that he wants all of God's people to know. He wants them to all hope in this because coming to the Lord, there is steadfast love, a love that endures, that survives all affliction, a love that is greater than any you can imagine. And with him is plentiful redemption, not just redemption for some of your sin, redemption for all of your sin, past, present, and future. That with the Lord, you don't have to worry about whether you can keep up. You don't have to worry about whether you continue to make more money to build up your bank account. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to be able to afford a bigger home. You're, you don't have to worry about whether you go on enough mission trips or come to enough Sunday school classes or, or teach enough Sunday school classes or, or serve as a deacon or serve as an elder or, or serve on some committee. You don't have to worry about whether all of your good deeds add up because he has plentiful redemption. It, with him, the books are balanced, the scales are set, and it has nothing, absolutely nothing. If you think it has anything to do with what you are able to do on your own, you are sadly, sadly mistaken, and you are hoping in many of the wrong things. You are hoping in yourself, you are hoping in false gods, you are hoping in whatever it may be, the American dream. You're just hoping in things that can change that can fail you, and they will change, and they will fail you. But when we hope in the Lord, what does he have for us? Steadfast love. It does not end, it continues. It's like, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a sprint kind of love, it's a marathon kind of love, it just continues. And plentiful redemption. The kind of redemption that doesn't deal with one of your sins. It deals with every single one of them. It satisfies them. It, 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 it takes them upon itself. And it does that because Jesus, the one who came to represent Israel, died on a cross that all the sins of all his people might be forgiven. In verse 8 it says, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Every single one of them. And yet, in the midst of all this, what do we try to do? If there's any guilt within us, any sin, any shame, any weakness, instead of looking for honor 
and power and, and, and innocence and forgiveness from the Lord, we try to numb it with, with medication or, or with the abuse of substances. We, we try to distract ourselves from it with the use of social media or TV or, or just going and filling up our calendars with a million things. Uh, we do anything to keep from being confronted by the fact that we're in the bottom of a pit and someone's got to help us. We don't know the way out. I'll modify a parable for you real quick. There was once a guy, and he's walking, and he fell in a hole. The hole was so deep, and the walls were so uh, straight up, he couldn't get out. Didn't know how to get out. Had no clue. So walking by comes a doctor, and he says, Hey, doctor, I'm stuck in this hole. Will you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down the hole, and keeps walking. Right? And so all of a sudden, then, comes a priest. The priest walks by, and he says, Hey, priest, can you help me out? And the priest writes down a prayer and throws it in the hole and keeps walking. But then a friend comes by and he says, hey, I'm stuck down here in this hole. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in. And he says, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck down here. He says, oh, it's okay. I know the way out. When we are in the depths of our affliction, Christ came into this world, descended to this world, descended to the depths. He endured all temptation, yet did not sin. He endured seeing people killed, people hurt, people suffering. He, he came into the depths of affliction, and he underwent those same things for us. Even in his death, he descended to the dead, that he might rise again and conquer death itself and bring victory over sin. In Jesus Christ, we have someone who knows the way out. And as we sit in the depths of despair and affliction and trial and our own sin... Jesus is saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, so come follow me. That is, a, that is an offer available to us all to say, I am tired of the drudgery of this life. I am tired of the guilt of this life. I am tired of trying to do it all myself to please myself, to please the people around me, to please my dad who didn't have an interest in me or my mother who abandoned me or whatever it may be. I'm tired. I need to know the way out. And Jesus says, I am the way. Let's pray.